those people down at the church don't even like each other. Were the words that I heard from an elderly man who was a member of a church that I served in. And I was tasked with going to his house. And, oh, by the way, I've been there two years and never met him before, though he was a member. I was tasked with going to his house and just trying to encourage and invite him back to the church and to the fold. And so I did that. And within minutes, within minutes of small talk, he said those words. Those people down at the church, I think he said that down at the church house, don't even like each other. And it didn't take long for me to find out and kind of figure out that a few years before, he had not gotten his way in some church decision. And like some people do, many people do, some people, he decided instead of trying to work it out and love people and be a part of God's church, that he would just sit at home. And I could kind of tell pretty quickly uh, that was what was going on. He was, like we talked about last week, a man of bitterness and who really, you know, I don't know if, if he even knew Christ or not, but he was certainly not a light to the world about the kids thing about this morning. He was very negative and very negative about the church, a church in which I knew had many people who loved and loved sacrificially and loved greatly and would give of themselves and help others. And yet this man didn't see that because of probably some situation that he didn't get his way in, is my assumption. And, but I, I remember when I left his house that day, driving away, I was still thinking, even knowing the situation that I'm pretty sure he was in, I remember thinking it's pretty sad if anyone has the mentality that the people at the church don't even like each other, especially since the command of Christ for us is not only to like each other, but to what? love each other, to love one another. We see it time and time again in Scripture. We see it from the mouth of Jesus more than once. And we see it again from Old to New Testament. And so in today's passage, we're going to see a, again, the clear command of Christ given to his disciples and by extension given to us to love one another. Now remember the context of this. Jesus is in this upper room with these disciples um, he has, they've had the Passover, he's instituted the Lord's Supper, they have, he's washed their feet in service, um, they've had this interesting discussion around Judas Iscariot, and Judas ends up heading out to do his evil deed, and now Jesus, there with his 11 faithful disciples, gives over the next few chapters, um, just some of the most amazing teaching we could ever imagine to read. I hope you'll be here the next couple of months as we dive into, as we finish 13 and 14, 15, 16, 17, amazing chapters of the Gospel of John. And Jesus opens his heart as much as maybe ever before, and he speaks to his little flock words of grace and hope and truth. If you found John 13, 31, let me know by saying word. Therefore, when he, which is Judas Iscariot, when Judas was gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, 
Yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come, so now I say to you. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Where are you going to go? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. We're going to dive into these verses, and I'm going to give you three, three main points here to kind of think about as we look at this text. The first point, I'm not going to give it to you right away, so if you're taking notes, you've got to just hold it for a second, but I want you to help me discover it. I want you to help me discover our first point, and it comes from verses 31 and 32. So if you'll look at those verses, again, just look there at your, at, your, at your word. Do you see anything repeated there? Do you see a word or two words with some repetition? I think Kendall might throw it up there for you too. You can look at it. You can see a couple of words repeated. Let me give you one, the word God. No matter what translation you have, it's in there at least three times. The word Jesus, Son of Man, and so referencing whether that's the Father or the Son being referenced. And then another word you see repeated at least five times is the word, did you see it? Glory or glorified. All right? So, in these two verses, as we try to discover the first point of today's sermon, Jesus is saying something about God being glorified and himself as God being glorified. So, let's first say this. What does it mean to glorify God? I want to give you a definition. To glorify God means to acknowledge his greatness. So, it means to acknowledge his greatness and give him praise and honor and worship for he is the only one worthy of worship. Right? Now, we can honor people in this world and give different types of honor to different people. Um, last night at the ball game, we had a, they had a special time for the veterans, which is an awesome thing for people to stand and cheer and support and honor. And veterans, certainly, and some of you are in here, deserve that honor. But we understand when we're talking about honoring God, it's a whole other level. He is the only one of that type of honor, of that type of worship, of that type of praise. And so in this verse, Jesus is saying, he's saying God is going to be glorified. So what does he mean? Look at verse 31. It says, now, does it say that in your word? Now is the Son of Man glorified. Again, no matter what translation you have, you're probably going to see the word now there. So Jesus is talking about something that's about to happen soon, and that thing that's going to happen soon is going to be used to glorify himself and the Father. So what's that thing? We've been hinting at it every week. In just hours, he's going to be arrested, betrayed and arrested. He's speaking here of his imminent suffering. He's speaking here of the cross. He is speaking here of his death. And he says in verse 31 that the Son of Man, Christ himself, will be glorified and that God in this will be glorified. So let's just say it this way for our first point. If you've been waiting, 
It's the glorious suffering of Christ. Now, even as I wrote that out as a point and put it on my notes, I thought, that seems like a strange way to say it, right? Why would Jesus say, hey guys, listen closely, I'm about to be glorified. Doesn't that seem weird? He could have said, I'm about to be betrayed. Remember the guy that just left out of this room? The one I gave the bread to? He's going to betray me with a kiss and I'm going to be arrested. And by the way, all you guys are going to leave me and abandon me. He could have said that, but he didn't. He could have said, guys, within 24 hours, I'm going to be on these trials. I'm going to be suffered. I'm going to be suffering and be mocked. And within 24 hours, I'm going to be killed. But he didn't say all that here. He said, I'm going to be glorified. Isn't that interesting? So what part of the suffering that our Lord went through, what part of that seems glorious to you, to me? Does any of it seem glorious to us? Was it being betrayed by a friend? Was it the arrest, the trials? Was it the, the mocking, the beatings, the suffering? Was it carrying his cross in front of a crowd in humiliation? Was it being, again, hung on a cross between two thieves? Does any of that seem glorious or even good in any way? Of course not. So we're reminded here that the crucifixion, the way Christ died, which we'll get to again as we continue in the text, but it's a shameful way to die, a disgrace. It's a curse in their time. As a matter of fact, over in Galatians 3.13, Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Paul in Galatians 3 is quoting from or citing from Deuteronomy. In this point, what I'm trying to show us, and I think what Christ is saying, is this, this gospel of Christ being shown in, a, I think, in a, a, such a powerful way. That the innocent, blessed Son of God, who was perfect, was put through the most reprehensible, is the word I have here, the most reprehensible suffering. And that... Christ, who deserved nothing but glory, was killed in our place. And I think Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified because he had a perfect perspective of the plan of God. You hear the three Ps? <laughs> the perfect perspective of the plan of God. And Jesus had perfect obedience to the plan of God. He knew what was coming. He accepted it. He was moving toward it. And so in this, I want to show you that the death of Christ reveals the glory of God in at least, I think I have four ways here for you. Uh, the death of Christ glorifies God, and it shows that God is wise. God is all wise. The wisdom of God is proven in that he had a perfect plan to save sinners like us. Number two, it showed that God is faithful. God made promises even in the Old Testament that he would one day redeem his people and God is faithful to keep all of his promises and he did here. Number three, it shows that God is holy. We understand this, right? I know we do in here that the sacrifice for our sins had to be someone perfect. So who qualifies to be that person? <laughs> Only one. That's Christ. 
and it shows, the death of Christ shows the holiness of God that sin must be paid for by a perfect sacrifice. And fourthly, he is loving. That God would send his son to make a sacrifice for us. And so in these four ways, and in many others, the death of Christ glorifies the Father. How about, how does it glorify the Son? Put this here for you as well. The death of Christ glorifies Christ in that it shows his compassion. He was compassionate to lay down his life for us, to suffer for us, to be counted as a curse for us. Number two, he is patient. Now think about this. Jesus walked around heard people say ignorant things, um, heard people, again, condemn him, as we see in, in the, hereafter in the scripture, had one of his very own followers turn against him, but Jesus shows great patience and compassion, even toward us. And thirdly, his power. That Christ could bear the weight of all our sin shows that he is the powerful son of God. So the death of Christ glorifies God, and it glorifies the Son. And this is what I think Jesus means when he says, Now is the Son of Man to be glorified. Have you guys ever seen a, I know you have, it's rhetorical, but have you ever seen a picture of a cross? Yes. you ever seen a, crucif a crucifix? you ever seen a painting of the cross? you ever seen a movie that depicts the, the cross? We've all seen these things, right? Have you ever heard a preacher describe the pain that Christ went through on the cross? We've all heard these things. But I want to say this to us. No picture, no movie, not even a description from a preacher, not, not, not reading it in a book. Nothing can truly describe to us what that cross and Christ on that cross was and is. It's powerful to think about the glory of the cross. So my final thing on this point is this. The glory of the suffering of Christ is that it calls God to be glorified to the utmost degree. And we, church, we should be the ones glorifying him for we have been redeemed. You think the disciples got this, though? You think they understood what he was saying in 31 and 32? Probably not. It was mysterious, unthinkable. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, little children. By the way, you know how many times Jesus called his disciples little children or children? One time. This is the only time Jesus calls them this. And I think it's just a, a loving, you know, tender spirit toward them. He says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So Jesus says in verse 33 simply, I'm leaving you. I'm going away. And this had to feel like such a punch in the gut to the disciples. I still think at this point, by the way, I still think these disciples thought Jesus was going to reign in Israel, and they might even be high officials in the kingdom that Jesus reigned in. I still think they probably thought that. Uh, they're still not quite getting it. And so what a, what a punch in the gut. What an earthquake or a, a shattering moment for Christ to say, little children, you know, I'm leaving you. And where I'm going, you cannot come. I can imagine the room just quiet. But that leads us to our second point of the sermon, and that's verses 34 and 35. In that quiet moment, as Jesus just said, I'm going to leave you, he gives a new commandment. 
A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. So our second point uh, to notice is there's the command to love one another. A few questions I have about this command is, why is it new? It doesn't seem new, does it? I mean, Leviticus 19.18, which I'll read to you, says, um, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so, why is this commandment new? It's not that Jesus had never said, love, love each other. It's not that the Old Testament had never said it. But it, it seems to me that when Jesus said it here, he's showing that it's going to hold an even higher place, a more honored place, because of the example of love he is giving and is about to give. And so I think what he's saying is, I'm going to elevate this idea of love by showing you the ultimate example of love. And I think, he, again, he, by washing their feet, right, he's kind of leading into this. But the next day, he's going to truly show them his love. So who do we love? Jesus said plainly there, love one another. Now, we understand that he also told us to love and pray for our enemies in another place. And so we're to love everyone. But there is a certain sense in which church, as Christians, we should have a great love for fellow believers. A love that shows itself in the church through kindness, patience, desiring the good of others, celebrating with those who celebrate, and mourning with those who mourn. Do we do these things with each other? We need to. Kindness, patience, desiring good, celebrating, and mourning. It should never be said of our church that those people down at the church house don't like each other. It should never be said. And if someone says that about our church, I would, I would tend to think um, they have a problem. <laughs> I would think. Because I've only seen love in our church. I thank, thank the Lord for that. But, but I pray people that know us or hear about us would say, man, they really love each other down there, right? That's what we want people to say. They really love each other. Like They're kind to each other. They're different people, different people from different backgrounds, different experiences, all kinds of differences. And by the way, if you don't know that, that's true about our church. We're a lot of different type of people in here, even in a smaller church, a lot of different kind of people. And yet, as we love one another and follow the command of Christ, we are united in that. And those, whatever differences we might have can, can be put to the back, the back burner, right? May it never be said that we don't like each other. May it certainly be said that we love each other. Uh, the third thing, how did Jesus love them? Now, he says in verse 34, as I have loved you, love one another. Can you think of the ways Jesus loved his disciples? I mean, count the ways, right? But let me give you just a couple. In the three years of his ministry, he loved them by, at times, providing for their physical needs. When they're hungry, providing food. When they're out in the storm, calming the sea. He provided physically for them. How about providing spiritually for them? Certainly. Showing them how to pray. Showing them how to serve. How about washing their feet here in chapter 13? Showing them a, a humble example. 
But now in the context of him leaving, to me it's, to me it's him saying, love one another with a steadfast love. I'm going to go away. You must stick together. And when push comes to shove, disciples, when, that's going to rhyme, isn't it? When push comes to shove, love. When push comes to shove, love. And Jesus shows them the next day the greatest example as he lays down his life. Why is it important? Well, one writer said, this shows us the, the in capital letters, the mark of a Christian. Verse 35, Jesus said, how are people going to know that you are truly my disciples? Is it because you go to church a lot? Is it because you sing great songs? Is it because you always carry your Bible around with you? How are people going to know that you're my disciples? Is it because you build big churches? You give a lot of money? How, how are people going to know you're my disciples? And in verse 35, he plainly says, if you love one another. And so to me, this is the proof of discipleship. Now, is there a way in which a lost person can love people? And, and yes, of course. But this is a deeper Christian love. It's proof of discipleship. It's proof of following Christ. I've given you our, uh, our discipleship pathway. I've talked about this some, and I need to do a better job of, of talking about this because I think this shows everyone in here where we're going as a church. And it's, I'll just give you four steps. The first one is turn to Christ. Now, this refers to becoming a Christian. And there's a sense in which you can't truly, fully love people in the church the way you need to if you're not a Christian. You can show kindness, you can show grace, but unless you're a Christian, you don't understand the love Christ has for you, you can't truly show that love to others in the way we're talking about today. The second thing is to join the congregation, to be a member of the church. You can't fully love the church if you're not a part of the church. That's kind of insane, right? It's kind of like this, and I don't know if anybody's in this situation, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but um, I was talking to someone a couple weeks ago that was, they've been engaged for like seven years to be married. And I was like, well, don't just get married. You know, you've been engaged for a while, you know, whatever. My point is this. For many of us, many of us believe that the, the fullness of loving that person in your life is to be married, that union, right? Well, the same thing with the church. If you're going to fully love and be loved by the church, uh, you need to be a part of it. And to be a part of it means to, to join it and, and, and be a regular part of the giving and the serving and the attending and worshiping together. The third thing is to invest in your church community. And by community, I mean this body. I mean to invest in each other. And we do that here, especially through our Wednesday night small groups, as we talk and fellowship and laugh and debate and discuss and smile and eat and pray and share the word. We invest, and you cannot fully love your church if you're not having times where you're investing in others and they're investing in you. You just can't fully do it. You can get a piece of it. You can get a piece of the pie, but you need the whole pie in this situation. Number four, to influence our crowd means to take the love of God out to the world. And here's what I want to say about this. If you love your church, and if you're being loved by your church, that will spill over into your life. I believe it will. Because at times you'll, be, you'll talk about your church, you'll talk about what the Lord's doing, and that will, again, influence the world. I read this um, article uh, Tertullian was a, a second century Christian writer. This is a long time ago. He wrote in like 160 A.D., so a long time ago. And he wrote and he talked about how the, the early church of Christ was being persecuted and the Romans believed 
that um, the Roman people believed that the church was undermining so many different things about their state religion and their lives. And so they said that the church was um, worshiping idols, all these false things that the Roman people were throwing on the early church. And so then he wrote this. These Romans who hated the church, persecuted the church, thought they were worshiping idols, thought they were threatening their own state religion, the Romans said, but, all this we don't like about them, but, oh, how they love one another. The early church loved each other in such a sacrificial, genuine way that even the people that hated them were like, well, I don't like anything about them, but they love each other. There's something different about how they love each other. And he wrote that, and that stuck with us for, for centuries. Church, we should, listen to this, we should hate the idea among ourselves as a church. We should hate the idea of being jealous toward each other or of envy, being envious of one another. We should hate the idea of being malicious toward anybody else in this fellowship or gossiping or slandering anyone else in our fellowship. We must follow the command of Christ, love one another. And I know we do that, but I want to encourage us to do it even better and do it even more. Yeah, I've, heard, I've told you all this before. Um, I've told Jesse, she loves to say I love you a lot, which is cool. I don't say it as much as I should, but I need to. But sometimes she'll say I love you, and I'll get tired of hearing it, so I'll say this. Don't tell me you love me. What? Show me you love me. And she does an awesome job with that too. But church, let, we can't just go, let's preach a sermon on love, and everybody goes amen, and then we walk out of here and we hate our brother and sister. All right? We have to show each other we love each other. And we do that, I know that, but I want to encourage us to keep doing it, okay? If you think today, I can't love so-and-so in my church family, I would, I would say today, you need to be praying. Maybe even while I'm preaching right now, I would just pray. We need to love each other. The third thing is in verses 36 through 38, and this will be a, a final and a quick thing here, but notice he, he transitions here, and this really um, you know, kind of goes with next week a little bit, but I want to go ahead and touch on it today. Um, notice the propensity for failure in the life of a believer. I'm a still believer, my bad. But notice that, that Jesus here in verses 36 through 38 deals with Simon Peter, and Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going to go? Because Jesus said, I'm going, and you can't come. Where are you going to go? I, I, I'm going to I'm gonna follow you, verse 37. Why can't I follow you? Lord, I'll, I'll lay down my life. I mean, Peter is gung-ho, right? You can't leave. I'm going to follow you. I'll lay down my life. I'll go to the extreme for you. I will lay it down for you. I will die for you. And then Jesus says, will you really lay down your life? Because not long from now, you're going to, de to deny me one time. I got that wrong. Let me read it again. Not long from now, Peter, you're going to deny me two times. How many times? Three times you're going to deny me. Over in chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, let's look at it briefly. John 18, 15 through 18, skipping ahead here. John 18, 15 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known to the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, or 
not thou also one of this man's disciples? And Peter saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there and who made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them, and he stood there and got warm. We'll, we'll talk more about that as we get to it. But the leader of the disciples, the passionate spokesman for the disciples, denied Christ. And I say that to say, if Peter was prone to fail, so are we. If Peter was prone to sin, right after being in the presence of Christ, so are we. Now Judas, if we go back to our context, Judas was, I believe, deliberate and planning of his sin. I think Peter's was more spontaneous. But nonetheless, he rejected his Savior. He rejected Christ in this moment. And I think what happens here, what happens in John 18 is that Peter's walk was built on, I think, emotion more than it was built on the foundation of Christ. And one uh, old writer said, Christ must first die for Peter before Peter can die for, for him. And after the cross, after Peter was restored, he went on to live and not reject Christ, right? To be a great preacher of the gospel and to lay down his life for Christ. We would do well to remember these things. We would do well to remember that we, are, we have a propensity to sin. Even after salvation, we still fall short. We still sin. Now, we give Simon Peter a tough time, but all the disciples basically abandoned Jesus, right? So, we, he does get picked on here, but there again, I'm showing you that if it happens to Simon Peter, if it can happen to those disciples, it can happen to us. Did you know, as I move to my conclusion, every time we sin, and I'm assuming for all of us, that's probably daily. Every time we sin, we commit, as someone said, cosmic treason against a holy God. Every time. Now, we take our sin lightly, I think, sometimes. Oh, I, just, I just sinned again, whatever. But our sin is worthy of death. Why doesn't God strike us down for even one sin? Could he if he wanted to? Could he have done that before you even were saved if he wanted to? Why doesn't God, for better, no better terms, kill us for one sin? Because he already killed someone else for our sin. Right? Jesus stood in our place. And God the Father, according to his eternal plan, decided to strike down his own son so that we would never be struck down. I'm thankful that his grace not only saves us, but when we sin after salvation, his grace causes us to repent and remain in him. And we are sustained and we're lo we stay loyal to him, not because we're good Christians, but because of his power, his strength, and his leading in our lives. Let's review these quickly, and then we'll, we'll be done. First, um, remember the glorious suffering of Christ. doesn't seem glorious, but because of what Christ did on the cross, we give him glory. Remember, secondly, the command to love one another. Let's continue to do that as a church. 
No matter what happens, no matter what decisions we make or things that happen here and there, we have to keep loving one another. And then finally, remember that we are apt, like Simon Peter, to, to fail, to sin. But know Christ has paid for that sin. And turn your eyes upon him. Let's pray.